Act Two of Candida. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Candida by George Bernard Shaw. Act Two. The same day, the same room, late in the afternoon. The spare chair for visitors has been replaced at the table, which is, if possible, more untidy than before. Marchbanks, alone and idle, is trying to find out how the typewriter works. Hearing someone at the door, he steals guiltily away to the window and pretends to be absorbed in the view. Miss Garnet, carrying the notebook in which she takes down Morell's letters in shorthand from his dictation, sits down at the typewriter and sets to work transcribing them, much too busy to notice Eugene. Unfortunately, the first key she strikes sticks. Bother! You've been meddling with my typewriter, Mr. Marchbanks. And there's not the least use in your trying to look as if you hadn't. I'm very sorry, Miss Garnet. I only tried to make it right. Well, you've made this key stick. I assure you, I didn't touch the keys. I didn't, indeed. I only turned a little wheel. Oh, now I understand. I suppose you thought it was a sort of barrel organ. Nothing to do but turn the handle, and it would write a beautiful love letter for you straight off, eh? I suppose a machine could be made to write love letters. They're all the same, aren't they? How do I know? Why do you ask me? Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought clever people, people who can do business and write letters and that sort of thing, always had love affairs. Mr. Marchbanks! I hope I haven't offended you. Perhaps I shouldn't have alluded to your love affairs. I haven't any love affairs. How dare you say such a thing? Really? Oh, then you're shy! Like me, isn't that so? Certainly I am not shy. What do you mean? You must be. That is the reason there are so few love affairs in the world. We all go about longing for love. It is the first need of our nature, is the loudest cry of our hearts, but we dare not utter our longing. We are too shy. Oh, Miss Garnet, what would you not give to be without fear, without shame? Well, upon my word! Ah, oh, don't say those stupid things to me. They don't deceive me. What use are they? Why are you afraid to be your real self with me? I'm just like you. Like me? Pray, are you flattering me or flattering yourself? I don't feel quite sure which. Hush. I go about in search of love, and I find it in unmeasured stores in the bosoms of others. But when I try to ask for it, this horrible shyness strangles me. And I stand dumb, or worse than dumb, saying meaningless things, foolish lies, and I see the affection I am longing for given to dogs and cats and pet birds, because they come and ask for it. It must be asked for. It is like a ghost. It cannot speak unless it is first spoken to. All the love in the world is longing to speak, only it dare not, because it is shy, shy, shy. That is the world's tragedy. <sighs> Wicked people get over that shyness occasionally, don't they? Wicked people means people who have no love. Therefore they have no shame. They have the power to ask love because they don't need it. They have the power to offer it because they have none to give. But we who have love and long to mingle it with the love of others, we cannot utter a word. You find that, don't you? Look here, if you don't stop talking like this, I'll leave the room, Mr. Marchbanks. I really will. It's not proper. Nothing that's worth saying is proper. 
I don't understand you, Miss Garnet. What am I to talk about? Talk about indifferent things. Talk about the weather. Would you stand and talk about indifferent things if a child were by, crying bitterly with hunger? I suppose not. Well, I can't talk about indifferent things with my heart crying out bitterly in its hunger. Then hold your tongue. <laughs> yes, that is what it always comes to. We hold our tongues. Does that stop the cry of your heart? For it does cry, doesn't it? It must, if you have a heart. Oh, it's no use trying to work while you talk like that. She leaves her little table and sits on the sofa. Her feelings are evidently strongly worked on. It's no business of yours whether my heart cries or not. But I have a mind to tell you for all that. You needn't. I already know that it must. But mind, if you ever say I said so, I'll deny it. Yes, I know. And so you haven't the courage to tell him. Him? Who? Whoever he is. The man you love. It might be anybody. The curate. Mr. Mill, perhaps. Mr. Mill? A fine man to break my heart about, indeed. I'd rather have you than Mr. Mill. Uh, no, no, really, I'm very sorry, but you mustn't think of that. I— Oh, don't be frightened. It's not you. It's not any one particular person. I know. You feel that you could love anybody that offered. Anybody that offered? No, I do not. What do you take me for? Oh, no use. You won't make me real answers. Only those things that everybody says. He strays to the sofa and sits down disconsolately. Oh, well, if you want original conversation, you'd better go and talk to yourself. That is what all poets do. They talk to themselves out loud, and the world overhears them. But it's horribly lonely not to hear someone else talk sometimes. Wait until Mr. Morell comes. He'll talk to you. Oh, you needn't make wry faces over him. He can talk better than you. He'd talk your little head off. She is going back angrily to her place, when suddenly enlightened he springs up and stops her. Ah! I understand now. What do you understand? Your secret. Tell me, is it really and truly possible for a woman to love him? Well. No, answer me. I want to know. I must know. I can't understand it. I can see nothing in him but words, pious resolutions, what people call goodness. You can't love that. I simply don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand you. You do. You lie. Oh. You do understand, and you know. Is it possible for a woman to love him? Yes. He covers his face with his hands. Whatever is the matter with you? He takes down his hands and looks at her. Frightened at the tragic mask presented to her, she hurries past him at the utmost possible distance, keeping her eyes on his face until he turns from her and goes to the child's chair beside the hearth, where he sits in the deepest dejection. As she approaches the door, it opens and Burgess enters. Praise heaven, here's somebody! And sits down reassured at her table. She puts a fresh sheet of paper into the typewriter as Burgess crosses to Eugene. Well, so this is the way they leave you to yourself, Mr. Morchbanks. I've come to keep you company. James is receiving a deputation in the dining room, and Candy is upstairs educating of a young stitcher girl she's interested in. She's sitting there learning her to read out of the heavenly twins. You must find it lonesome here with no one but the typist to talk to. 
He pulls round the easy-chair above fire, and sits down. "'He'll be all right, now that he has the advantage of your polished conversation. That's one comfort, anyhow.' She begins to typewrite with clattering asperity. "'I was not addressing myself to you, young woman, that I'm aware of.' "'Did you ever see worse manners, Mr. Marchbanks?' "'Mr. Marchbanks is a gentleman and knows his place, which is more than some people do.' "'It's well you and I are not ladies and gentlemen. I'd talk to you pretty straight if Mr. Marchbanks wasn't here.' She pulls the letter out of the machine so crossly that it tears. "'Ah! There, now I've spoiled this letter. Have to be done all over again. Oh, I can't contain myself. Silly old fathead!' "'Ho! I'm a silly old fathead, am I? Ho! (laughs) Indeed! All right, my girl, all right. You just wait till I tell that to your employer. You'll see. I'll teach you. See, I don't. I— No, you've done it now. No use of talking to me. I'll let you know who I am. Proserpine shifts her paper carriage with a defiant bang, and disdainfully goes on with her work. Don't you take no notice of her, Mr. Morchbanks? She's beneath it. Uh, hadn't we better change the subject? I, I, I don't think Miss Garnet meant anything. Oh, didn't I, though? Just. I wouldn't demean myself to take notice on her. An electric bell rings twice. That's for me. She hurries out. Well, we can spare you. Now we're alone, Mr. Morchbanks. Let me give you a friendly hint, though I wouldn't give to everybody. How long have you known my son-in-law James here? I, I don't know. I never can remember dates. A few months, perhaps. Ever notice anything queer about him? I, I don't think so. No more you wouldn't. That's the danger in it. Well, he's mad. Mad? Mad as a march heir. You take notice on him, and you'll see. But surely that is only because his opinions— That's what I used to think, Mr. Marchbanks. I thought long enough that it was only his opinions, though, mind you. Opinions becomes very serious things when people takes to hecty on em as he does. But that's not what I go on. He looks round to make sure that they are alone, and bends over to Eugene's ear. What do you think he says to me this morning in this very room? What? He says to me, this is as sure as we're sitting here now, he says, I'm a fool, he says, and you're a scoundrel, as cool as possible. Me a scoundrel, mind you. And then shook hands with me on it, as if it was to my credit. Do you mean to tell me that that man's sane? Morel, outside, calling to Proserpine, holding the door open. Get all their names and addresses, Miss Garnet. Yes, Mr. Morel. Morel comes in with the deputation's documents in his hands. You're he is. Just you keep your eye on him and see. I'm sorry, James, to have to make a complaint to you. I don't want to do it, but I feel I ought to as a matter of right and duty. What's the matter? Mr. Marchbanks will bear me out. He was a witness. Your young woman has so far forgot herself as to call me a silly old fat-head. Oh, now, isn't that exactly like Prossy? She's so frank. She can't contain herself. Poor Prossy. (laughs) 
and you expect me to put up with it from the like of er uh? pooh nonsense you can't take any notice of it never mind oh i don't mind i'm above it but is it right that's what i want to know is it right that's a question for the church not for the laity has it done you any harm that's the question for you eh of course it hasn't think no more of it he dismisses the subject by going to his place at the table and setting to work at his correspondence what did i tell you mad as a air when's dinner james not for half an hour yet give me a nice book to read over the fire will you james there's a good chap what sort of book a good one no summat pleasant just to pass the time morel takes an illustrated paper from the table and offers it he accepts it humbly thank you james he goes back to his easy-chair at the fire and sits there at his ease reading candida will come to entertain you presently she has got rid of her pupil she is filling the lamps that will soil her hands i can't bear that morel it's a shame i'll go and fill them he makes for the door you'd better not marchbank stops irresolutely she'd only set you to clean my boots to save me the trouble of doing it myself in the morning don't you keep a servant now james yes but she isn't a slave and the house looks as if i kept three that means that everyone has to lend a hand it's not a bad plan prossy and i can talk business after breakfast whilst we're washing up washing up's no trouble when there are two people to do it do you think every woman is as coarse-grained as miss garnet that's quite right mr Morchbanks. that's quite right she is coarse-grained Marchbanks. yes how many servants does your father keep oh i don't know he comes back uneasily to the sofa as if to get as far as possible from morel's questioning and sits down in a great agony of mind thinking of the paraffin so many that you don't know anyhow when there's anything coarse grain to be done you ring the bell and throw it on to somebody else eh that's one of the great facts in your existence isn't it oh don't torture me the one great fact now is that your wife's beautiful fingers are dabbling in paraffin oil and that you are sitting here comfortably preaching about it everlasting preaching preaching words 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 ha <laughs> ha devil a bitter edgy there james straight candida comes in well aproned with a reading lamp trimmed filled and ready for lighting she places it on the table near morel ready for use if you stay with us eugene i think i will hand over the lamps to you i will stay on condition that you hand over all the rough work to me that's very gallant but i think i should like to see how you do it first james you've not been looking after the house properly what have i done or not done my love my own particular pet scrubbing brush has been used for blackleading a heartbreaking wail bursts from marchbanks burgess looks round amazed candida hurries to the sofa what's the matter are you ill eugene no not ill only horror 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 he bows his head on his hands what got the horrors mr Morchbanks? oh that's bad at your age you must leave it off gradually nonsense papa 
It's only poetic horror, isn't it, Eugene? Oh, poetic horror, is it? I beg your pardon, I'm sure. What is it, Eugene? The scrubbing brush? Well, there, never mind. She sits down beside him. Wouldn't you like to present me with a nice new one, with an ivory back inlaid with mother of pearl? No, not a scrubbing brush, but a boat. A tiny shallop to sail away in, far from the world, where the marble floors are washed by the rain and dried by the sun, where the south wind dusts the beautiful green and purple carpets. Or a chariot, to carry us up into the sky where the lamps are stars, and don't need to be filled with paraffin oil every day. And where there is nothing to do but be idle, selfish, and useless. Oh, James, how could you spoil it all? Yes, to be idle, selfish, and useless, that is to be beautiful and free and happy. Hasn't every man desired that with all his soul for the woman he loves? That's my ideal. What's yours and that of all the dreadful people who live in these hideous rows of houses, sermons and scrubbing brushes, with you to preach the sermon and your wife to scrub? He cleans the boots, Eugene. You will have to clean them tomorrow for saying that about him. Oh, don't talk about boots. Your feet should be beautiful on the mountains. My feet would not be beautiful on the Hackney Road without boots. Come, Candy, don't be vulgar. Mr. Morchbanks ain't accustomed to it. You're giving him the horrors again. I mean the poetic ones. Morel is silent. Apparently he is busy with his letters. Really he is puzzling with misgiving over this new and alarming experience that the surer he is of his moral thrusts, the more swiftly and effectively Eugene parries them. To find himself beginning to fear a man whom he does not respect affects him bitterly. Miss Garnet comes in with a telegram. Reply paid. The boy's waiting. Maria is ready for you now in the kitchen, Mrs. Morell. Candida rises. The onions have come. Onions? Yes, onions. Not even Spanish ones. Nasty little red onions. You shall help me to slice them. Come along. She catches him by the wrist and runs out, pulling him after her. Burgess rises in consternation, and stands aghast on the hearthrug, staring after them. Candy didn't ought to handle a Piers nevy like that. He's going too full with it. Looky here, James. Do he often get taken queer like that? I don't know. He talks very pretty. I always had a turn for a bit of potery. Candy takes out of me that away. Who's to make me tell her fairy stories? when she was only a little kitty, not that I. Indicating a stature of two feet or thereabouts. Ah, indeed. He blots the telegram and goes out. Used you to make the fairy stories up out of your own head? Burgess, not deigning to reply, strikes an attitude of the haughtiest disdain on the hearthrug. I should never have supposed you had it in you. By the way, I'd better warn you, since you've taken such a fancy to Mr. Marchbanks. He's mad. Mad? What? Him too? Mad as a March hare. He did frighten me, I can tell you, just before you came in that time. Haven't you noticed the queer things he says? So that's what the poetic horrors means. Blame me if it didn't come into my head once or twice that he must be off his chump. Well, this is a pretty sort of asylum for a man to be in with no one but you to take care of him. Yes, what a dreadful thing it would be if anything happened to you. 
don't you address no remarks to me tell your employer that i've gone into the garden for a smoke oh before burgess can retort morell comes back go and return in the garden to smoke james oh all right all right burgess goes out pathetically in the character of the weary old man morell stands at the table turning over his papers and adding across to proserpine well miss prossy why have you been calling my father-in-law names i <laughs> oh come 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 never mind pross he is a silly old fathead isn't he with an explosive sob she makes a dash at the door and vanishes banging it Morel, shaking his head resignedly, sighs and goes wearily to his chair, where he sits down and sets to work, looking old and careworn. Candida comes in. She has finished her household work and taken off the apron. She at once notices his dejected appearance, and posts herself quietly at the spare chair, looking down at him attentively, but she says nothing. "'Well, where is Eugene?' "'Washing his hands in the scullery, under the tap.' He will make an excellent cook if he can only get over his dread of Maria. Ha! No doubt. Come here, dear. Let me look at you. He drops his pen and yields himself at her disposal. She makes him rise and brings him a little way from the table, looking at him critically all the time. Turn your face to the light. My boy is not looking well. Has he been overworking? Nothing more than usual. He looks very pale and grey and wrinkled and old. Here. You've done enough writing for today. Leave Prossy to finish it and come and talk to me. But— Yes, I must be talked to sometimes. Now. She makes him sit down and seats herself on the carpet beside his knee. You're beginning to look better already. Why don't you give up all this tiresome overworking, going out every night lecturing and talking? Of course what you say is all very true and very right, but it does no good. They don't mind what you say to them one little bit. Of course they agree with you, but what's the use of people agreeing with you if they go and do just the opposite of what you tell them the moment your back is turned? Look at our congregation at St. Dominic's. Why do they come to hear you talking about Christianity every Sunday? Why, just because they've been so full of business and money-making for six days that they want to forget all about it and have a rest on the seventh, so that they can go back fresh and make money harder than ever— you positively help them at it instead of hindering them. You know very well, Candida, that I often blow them up soundly for that. But if there is nothing in their church-going but rest and diversion, why don't they try something more amusing, more self-indulgent? There must be some good in the fact that they prefer St. Dominic's to worse places on Sunday. Oh, the worst places aren't open. And even if they were, they daren't be seen going to them. Besides, James, dear, you preach so splendidly that it's as good as a play for them. Why do you think the women are so enthusiastic? Candida! Oh, I know. You silly boy. You think it's your socialism and your religion. But if it was that, they'd do what you tell them instead of only coming to look at you. They all have Prossy's complaint. Prossy's complaint? What do you mean, Candida? Yes, Prossy, and all the other secretaries you ever had. Why does Prossy condescend to wash up the things and to peel potatoes and abase herself in all manner of ways for six shillings a week less than she used to get in a city office? She's in love with you, James, that's the reason. They're all in love with you. 
and you are in love with preaching because you do it so beautifully and you think it's all enthusiasm for the kingdom of heaven on earth and so do they you dear silly candida what dreadful what soul-destroying cynicism are you jesting oh can it be are you jealous yes i feel a little jealous sometimes what of prossy no 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 not jealous of anybody jealous for somebody else who is not loved as you ought to be me you why you're spoiled with love and worship you get far more than is good for you no i mean eugene eugene it seems unfair that all the love should go to you and none to him although he needs it so much more than you do a convulsive movement shakes him in spite of himself what's the matter am i worrying you not at all you know that i have perfect confidence in you candida you vain thing are you so sure of your irresistible attractions candida you are shocking me i never thought of my attractions i thought of your goodness your purity that is what i confide in what a nasty uncomfortable thing to say to me oh you are a clergyman james a thorough clergyman so eugene says eugene's always right he's a wonderful boy i have grown fonder and fonder of him all the time i was away do you know james that though he has not the least suspicion of it himself he is ready to fall madly in love with me oh he has no suspicion of it himself hasn't he not a bit some day he will know when he has grown up and experienced like you and he will know that i must have known i wonder what he will think of me then no evil candida i hope and trust no evil that will depend depend yes it will depend on what happens to him don't you see it will depend on how he comes to learn what love really is i mean on the sort of woman who will teach it to him yes no i don't know what you mean if he learns it from a good woman then it will be all right he will forgive me forgive but suppose he learns it from a bad woman as so many men do especially poetic men who imagine all women are angels suppose he only discovers the value of love when he has thrown it away and degraded himself in his ignorance will he forgive me then do you think forgive you for what don't you understand he shakes his head she turns to him again so as to explain with the fondest intimacy i mean will he forgive me for not teaching him myself for abandoning him to the bad women for the sake of my goodness my purity as you call it ah james how little you understand me to talk of your confidence in my goodness and purity i would give them both to poor eugene as willingly as i would give my shawl to a beggar dying of cold if there were nothing else to restrain me put your trust in my love for you james for if that went i should care very little for your sermons mere phrases that you cheat yourself and others with every day his words whose words eugene's he is always right he understands you he understands me he understands prossy and you james you understand nothing she laughs and kisses him to console him he recoils as if stung and springs up how can you bear to do that when oh candida i had rather you had plunged a grappling iron into my heart than given me that kiss my dear what's the matter don't touch me james they are interrupted by the entrance of marchbanks with burgess who stops near the door staring whilst eugene hurries forward between them 
Is anything the matter? Nothing but this, that either you were right this morning, or Candida is mad. What? Candy mad too? Oh, come, come, come. He crosses the room to the fireplace, protesting as he goes, and knocks the ashes out of his pipe on the bars. Morel sits down desperately, leaning forward to hide his face, and interlacing his fingers rigidly to keep them steady. Oh, you're only shocked. Is that all? How conventional all you unconventional people are. Come, behave yourself, Candy. What will Mr. Morchbank think of you? This comes of James teaching me to think for myself, and never to hold back out of fear of what other people may think of me. It works beautifully as long as I think the same things as he does. But now, because I have just thought something different. Look at him. Just look. She points to Morel, greatly amused. Eugene looks, and instantly presses his hand on his heart, as if some deadly pain had shot through it, and sits down on the sofa like a man witnessing a tragedy. "'Well, James, you certainly hate as impressive-looking as usual. <laughs> I suppose not. I beg all your pardons. I was not conscious of making a fuss. Well, 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 well.' He goes back to his place at the table, setting to work at his papers again with resolute cheerfulness. Candida, going to the sofa and sitting beside Marchbanks, still in a bantering humour. "'Well, Eugene, why are you so sad? Did the onions make you cry?' Morel cannot prevent himself from watching them. "'It's your cruelty. I hate cruelty. It is a horrible thing to see one person make another suffer.' "'Poor boy, have I been cruel? Did I make it slice nasty little red onions?' "'Oh, stop! Stop! I don't mean myself. You have made him suffer frightfully. I feel his pain in my own heart. I know that it is not your fault. It is something that must happen, but don't make light of it. I shudder when you torture him and laugh. I torture James? Nonsense, Eugene, how you exaggerate. Silly. She looks round at Morel, who hastily resumes his writing. She goes to him and stands behind his chair, bending over him. Don't work any more, dear. Come and talk to us. Ah, no. I can't talk. I can only preach. Well, come and preach. Oh, no, Candy. Hang it all. Lexi Mill comes in, looking anxious and important. Lexi hastening to shake hands with Candida. How do you do, Mrs. Morell? So glad to see you back again. Thank you, Lexi. You know Eugene, don't you? Oh, yes. How do you do, Marchbanks? Quite well, thanks. I've just come from the Guild of St. Matthew. They are in the greatest consternation about your telegram. There's nothing wrong, is there? What did you telegraph about, James? He was to have spoken for them to-night. They've taken the large hall in Mare Street and spent a lot of money on posters. Morell's telegram was to say he couldn't come. It came on them like a thunderbolt. Given up an engagement to speak. First time in his life, I'll bet. I eat candy. They decided to send an urgent telegram to you, asking whether you could not change your mind. Have you received it? Yes, yes, I got it. It was reply paid. Yes, I know. I answered it. I can't go. But why, James? Because I don't choose. 
These people forget that I am a man. They think I am a talking machine to be turned on for their pleasure every evening of my life. May I not have one night at home with my wife and my friends? They are all amazed at this outburst, except Eugene. His expression remains unchanged. Oh, James, you know you'll have an attack of bad conscience tomorrow, and I shall have to suffer for that. I know, of course, that they make the most unreasonable demands on you, but they have been telegraphing all over the place for another speaker, and they can get nobody but the president of the Agnostic League. Well, an excellent man. What better do they want? But he always insists so powerfully on the divorce of socialism from Christianity. He will undo all the good we have been doing. Of course, you know best, but... Oh, do go, James. We'll all go. Look here, Candy. I say, let's stay at home by the fire, comfortable. He won't need to be more than a couple of hours away. You'll be just as comfortable at the meeting. We'll all sit on the platform and be great people. Oh, please don't let us go on the platform. No, everyone will stare at us. I, I couldn't. I'll sit at the back of the room. Don't be afraid. They'll be too busy looking at James to notice you. Prossy's complaint, Candida, eh? Yes. Prossy's complaint? What are you talking about, James? Miss Garnet? Yes, Mr. Morell. Coming. They all wait, except Burgess, who goes stealthily to Lexi and draws him aside. Listen here, Mr. Mill. What's Prossy complaint? What's wrong with her? Well, I don't exactly know, but she spoke very strangely to me this morning. I'm afraid she's a little out of her mind sometimes. Why, it must be catching. Fought in the same house. He goes back to the hearth, quite lost before the instability of the human intellect in a clergyman's house. What is it, Mr. Morell? Telegraph to the Guild of St. Matthew that I am coming. Don't they expect you? Do as I tell you. Proserpine, frightened, sits down at her typewriter and obeys. Morell goes across to Burgess, Candida watching his movements all the time with growing wonder and misgiving. Burgess, you don't want to come? Oh, don't put it up yet, James. It's only that he ain't Sunday, you know. I'm sorry, I thought you might like to be introduced to the chairman. He's on the works committee of the county council and has some influence in the matter of contracts. Burgess wakes up at once. Morell, expecting as much, waits a moment. Will you come? Course I'll come, James. Ain't it always a pleasure to hear you? I shall want you to take some notes at the meeting, Miss Garnet, if you have no other engagement. She nods, afraid to speak. You are coming, Lexi, I suppose? Certainly. We are all coming, James. No, you are not coming, and Eugene is not coming. You will stay here and entertain him, to celebrate your return home. Eugene rises, breathless. But James... I insist. You do not want to come, and he does not want to come. Candida is about to protest. Oh, don't concern yourselves. I shall have plenty of people without you. Your chairs will be wanted by unconverted people who have never heard me before. Eugene, wouldn't you like to come? I should be afraid to let myself go before Eugene. He is so critical of sermons. He knows I am afraid of him. He told me as much this morning. 
Well, I shall show him how much afraid I am by leaving him here in your custody, Candida. That's brave. That's beautiful. He sits down again, listening with parted lips. But, but is anything the matter, James? I can't understand. Ah, I thought it was I who couldn't understand, dear. He takes her tenderly in his arms and kisses her on the forehead, then looks round quietly at Marchbanks. End of Act Two